I'd built a world that was based on my sight and suddenly it was gone. But for me, it was like a very strange experience to have that taken away by a decision that I made, right? Like I voluntarily chose to do this surgery and I spent a lot of time just scratching my head about what, what my life is going to be like from this moment on. Like I really felt lost. It starts with just taking that leap. Man, you have to work hard. You have to be incredibly smart. Choose something that even if it fails, even if it fails you are going to be proud of it. Does it matter how badly you got beaten down? Be kind, be kind, be kind. Become a better person, a better leader, a better business. Go with your gut. <laughs> I'm Samuel Donner, and this is Finding Founders. Laser eye surgery, a seemingly inconsequential, almost routine surgery that in an instant turned into a nightmare. Samit Ajwani, who had built a career creating films for a global ad agency in Canada, discovered he could no longer see. He was a wonderkind. His career was moving fast. He had been appointed head of an ad agency at 23 years old. But this wouldn't be the end of his story. Summit would ultimately create a producer-led collaborative network called Makers that would get involved with projects from giving bikes to kids in Ghana, building a Lego city inside a children's hospital, and working with Habitat for Humanity. To date, Makers has 11,000 producers around the world in 173 countries. But the building of this collaborative future between creatives started actually before Summit was born. It started with his father mailing a ring across an ocean over 40 years ago. My name is Summit Ajwani. I'm uh, a producer. That's what my mom would tell you. Um, and she would tell you I've been producing since I was four years old. And it's all I know how to do. But before you were doing all that, I actually want to take it back to uh, the very beginning, actually, like the beginning before the beginning. Uh, and talk a little bit about how your dad um, uh, came from India to Canada. For sure. So, um, you know, I've only heard, heard this story through uh, Indian parents and anyone who's got Indian parents knows that they like to embellish the story and it gets bigger <laughs> and bigger as it goes on. But the last version I was told looks a little like this. Uh, my mom had applied to come to Canada. Her sister lived here in Canada. And um, so she applies for her visa and it takes a while to get it. So she waits a couple of years and she's in the middle of just starting to date my dad for a few months. And they, they met uh, in Calcutta and suddenly she gets this, the paperwork that she's been approved to come to Canada. And she's like, peace, I'm leaving. <laughs> so she takes off and goes to Canada. And I guess he figured that, uh, you know, she, she was special. Um, and so, uh, apparently he writes her a letter and sends her a ring in the mail and proposes to marry her. She says, yes. Wow. Yeah. A ring in uh, the mail. That's bold too. Now he kept the diamond. Okay, he just okay. sent the he ring. Send yeah. the jewels over through the postal <laughs> service. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it did arrive and she did get it. And, uh, she said yes. Um, and then, so she sponsored him. And then a few months later, he ends up taking the trip. Um, to India. Now he'd never left India at this point. So he gets to Charles de Gaulle and he uh, has $20 uh, in his pocket. Um, it's a much longer story, but India in that time didn't let you take um, money out of the country. It was a way to keep the brain drain down. So anyway, he gets to Charles de Gaulle in 1979 and he's got 20 bucks and he sees uh, buys a bottle of perfume for my mom. And, uh, he sees some playboy magazines that he'd never seen before. So he buys a couple of those. So he shows up to Canada with $4, a couple of playboy magazines and the perfume for my mom and started his life from there. 
Um, and yeah, they lived in a tiny apartment. My mom worked at a grocery store while he hunted for jobs and, uh, they had me in 1982. Um, and yeah, the rest is history. So what are some of like your earliest memories growing up? Those first few years, I remember spending a lot of it with adults and just being on my own. You know, my family didn't have a lot of friends and a lot of family here. They started to develop some friendships and relationships, but it was, it was kind of all new. So, you know, I remember that first uh, classroom I walked into in junior kindergarten and I'd kind of joined this school a little bit late in the year. Um, my parents had moved and um, I'll never forget like the, the, this classroom of kids. I'd never seen like just so many kids in one place. And, you know, I didn't really talk to kids. So this was like really um, anxiety driving. And I picked the one activity that I saw no other kids at. And it was these giant blocks. And this kid comes over and he's like, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm building a spaceship. And he's like, can I help? I'm like, sure, why not? Uh, So we start building this spaceship together. And then more and more kids start coming to join the spaceship building. And by the end of the class, we had built um, this spaceship that everyone could sit inside. It was like big enough. Wow, that's that's huge. (laughs) Yeah, it was cool. It was by like 20, 25 kids. And so my teacher, Mrs. Daniel, she takes a photo of us. And, uh, it like, I don't know if there's like a scene from a movie, but like that photo ends up hanging on the wall of my school, um, for all the years I was there. How did that develop further? Like, do you take on leadership positions as you like went into like middle school and high school? I, I did, but in, in my own way, I used to find, so I, it's not like I joined, like I, I did join student council, but I was never like a student council president or things like that. It was more like, what's an activity I could do. So maybe, uh, you know, this sounds silly, but in high school, I'd organize my friends together and we would just cook together. So what was like the the family dynamic like with your brother? And also, I mean, your mother was Catholic and your father was Hindu. So like, what does that like a mix of cultures look like? Yeah, actually it's, so my brother's born in 1987. Uh, so he shows up on the, on the scene and, um, I, I don't even, I, I guess the best way I can, I can, the best story I can give you about my brother is, um, one of the earliest rem- memories I have of him, he must've been like six or eight months old and I'm just playing with him, whatever. And he punches me. He full on like hits me. Okay. Out of nowhere. I'm just like, what, why would you do that? And it was, it was so shocking. And I just think from that moment on, there was this constant like combativeness that has always been between us. We've, we're very close. We worked together for years. We've, you know, done, we used to do so much together. Um, Indian parents that again, like they just, if, if you're the older brother, then you're responsible for the younger one. So he was almost like my like practice son. You know, and I have to like take them everywhere with me even if yeah. I didn't want to. So, you know, we were always together doing stuff, but it was always like very combative. So what kind of things did your parents like encourage with you and your brother? Like both like just like extracurricular wise or even uh, like in school, like what kind of values were they instilling in you that you remember? So my parents ended up getting divorced um, in around when I was in grade six, it needed to happen. Like it wasn't a bad thing. Like they, they were just fight constantly and it was, it was better. They, they were apart and you know, our relationships with both parents got better once they split up. So they were very different in the way they would approach us. My mom, um, you know, she would give us tons of freedom and autonomy. Like she just wanted us to like learn and figure things out and make mistakes. And she was very much about how much rope can I give these kids? Um, and let them, you know, do things. My dad, he was always very critical. It was sort of his way of, of, uh, teaching us things. Do you feel like that 
made you want to achieve more? Definitely. But not from, not necessarily from a good place. Like it yeah, was always no, like, like it, it was, it's probably yeah. from a place of like, like seeking that approval and, and just like it not being there. It's like, it's like, Oh, I, I that, that means I just have to be like that much better or that much better, which is a slippery slope to be on. But it, it is, I struggle to feel accomplished. It's like, I, I struggle to take compliments. I struggle to like, I, I, I can take people c- criticizing me all day and all night. That's easy. Say something nice about me. And I'm like, like, stop, please don't. <laughs> it's a different kind of environment to grow up in. Um, but at the same time, it makes you want to work really hard and it makes you very, you know, achieve at all costs. I'm curious if your parents pushed you to do different things. Uh, were there any early signs of like, hey, this is like the appropriate or best career um, to go into? Oh, thousand percent. Um, like, again, my dad doctor, lawyer, engineer, you know, and, uh, yeah, no, no wavering on that. Um, I remember when I told him I, I, um, did really well in computers and computer engineering type stuff. So in, at the end of high school, I applied to, um, you know, all the computer engineering schools, but I was also really into film at that time. And Mm -hmm. so I also applied to all these film schools. I would love to maybe like talk about, uh, going into the teenage years where you got into a little bit of a, uh, worse crowd. I go into grade nine and I go to this high school in Toronto. Uh, yeah, I don't care. I don't know if you care about agent court public school or high school. Ah, yes. I love Yes. Yeah, <laughs> totally know where that is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So anyway, I get into this, in this high school in Scarborough and, um, my stepbrother, uh, had gone there and my dad, you know, he'd always compare me to my stepbrother. So everything was, why can't you be more like Ruben? Why can't you do this like Ruben? Why can't you do this like Ruben? So of course, what was Ruben doing? Well, Ruben was just two years older than me. So he was, you know, extended French, played baseball. He, you know, he just did kid stuff. Um, but Indian parents, they always want to compare you to somebody. So, you know, like he, you know, Ruben, if he was here, he would tell you he was compared to somebody else by his dad. So here's my dad comparing just me to com- Ruben. Like, like constantly yeah, yeah, there's being always compared somebody by that's, who, that's yeah. better than you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, for my brother, I would have been his basis of comparison. So why can't you be more like your older brother? Anyway, so, so I have to go to the same school and do the same things that Ruben does. So I go there and, um, I'm not sure that the school and I just did not connect. Like we, for whatever reason, it just, I try to do things and they were just very discouraging of me. Like I, I used to play the saxophone and I wanted to join the jazz band and I used to love debating and they wouldn't let me in the debate club cause I was too, too young, you know, just things like that. It was, it was just, yeah, I just felt like it was blocked out of everything. So anyway, um, I ended up getting in with a bad crowd, uh, and I just skipped a ton of school. Like I would just not, not show up. I, I, um, I I traced my mom's signature. I don't think she knows this, so I hope she doesn't hear this, but I traced her signature on like the first day of school. And then I would use that on papers to get out of classes all the time. Um, so I'd just sign myself out of stuff and not for any good reason. It's not like I went and drank or did something cool or no, I would just like buy nachos. This is a true story. at Walmart and then like hang out in this forest with some friends and we'd like eat nachos and just hang out and do nothing. It was such a waste. Sounds kind of fun though. (laughs) It was, it was kind of fun. Yeah. With friends, but it was just completely unproductive and not. How did that affect school? Oh, my, you know, my marks were terrible. This is one of those times where the Indian dad really helps. He came in and he saw what was going on and he's like, okay, this is not good. We got to get you out of this school. And he moved me to this other school where I knew one friend, um, a really good friend at the time. And, um, and then suddenly everything changed. I just got into a good crowd of people. 
uh, my marks went up. I became like top tier student, got involved in everything. And it was life-changing. And had I not left that school, I would have stayed in that, in that rut. Um, and it was really, really good. And I'm, there's a couple of moments in my life that I go, dad, you knocked it out of the park. And, and that was one of those moments that he really knocked it out of the park. So with that new school, like what, what kind of interests were you exploring? They had an, um, an enriched program, like science and math and things like that. So I found myself in, in enriched studies. Um, and I, yeah, just the kids that were in those classes, they just were there to learn and were really cared about school. And so suddenly that impacted me and I became like that. Um, and later on, um, I started getting into film. Um, I got in, I got a camera and, um, I started just shooting stuff and editing stuff. So in school, um, there was a, I was in a, a philosophy program, a philosophy class and the teacher, um, you know, gave us a, a, like a project where we could sort of come up with our own way of telling a story around philosophy. And it was very close to when the matrix came out. And, um, and so I actually, um, managed to record on two VCRs. Um, like these videos that I created of sort of talking about philosophy and telling stories, but all through movies. And I, and I just cut this, these clips together and I, I created my project that way. And I really loved that way of telling stories. So what grade did you get on that philosophy, uh, project? I got an A and you know, like after that moment, once I got that A on that one project, my teachers will tell you, I submitted videos for everything. Like someone asked an English teacher, English lit teacher asked me to submit an essay about a, a story, a book that I read. And I went and I shot an extra scene for the book and got all my friends to act in it and submitted as my, you know, my like essay, a movie. And you know, like a 10 minute, you know, film. And she's like, I don't know how to grade this against the curriculum. And so they just gave me A's all the time after that. Cause it was just so out there. <laughs> well, it's super cool that they're actually encouraging this, this exploration. hundred percent. And again, like to, like the, to the credit of this high school, like they did so much for me. Um, you know, they, so at one point they went out and they bought me uh, a camera and a, a Mac, um, to edit on. Um, and they set up, I'm not even kidding, an office for me in the school where I had a key and I could walk in and go and edit stuff on my own. And I would shoot videos for assemblies and I would, you know, just constantly be like production. I started a club called Mac Media and got people in my grade to join. And, um, and it was all because the school, you know, encouraged it. There was no media program. There was, um, a part-time media person, like an AV person that would come in and she was a great, uh, mentor to start with. Um, but the school itself, the principal especially, um, did a lot for me to give me that chance to build that world. What do you think you wanted to do with this? Like, were, were, were you getting ideas of like, this is what my life could look like as a filmmaker? Did you even have the concept of like a filmmaker in your mind or was it just like, this is fun? None of it. I, I kid you not. Um, you know, I, I was so ingrained with, I'm going to be an engineer that I was you know, everything I was doing was towards being an engineer. I was learning computer programming. I was like all of that. The film stuff for me was like a labor of love. Like I just did it because it was fun. When did that like that start to mature into something that you felt like you maybe at the very least you could study? I actually um, was submitting films to like short high school film festivals and I kept getting uh, let's call it like traction, like audience traction, you know, so I'd, I'd submit a film, um, and I'd, you know, shot, directed, 
produced all that kind of stuff. I had a friend that would help me on these things and I'd win, we'd win awards. Like I'd get a best director, best film, best cinematography award, you know, just like, and so like it, it started to go, Oh, maybe, maybe I have something in this. Um, in my final year of high school, we actually shot uh, a feature film, uh, on a budget of $1,500. It was a sci-fi film. And <laughs> We like built our own dolly. We found locations. Um, the Toronto Transit Commission, we shot a lot through the subways and stuff in Toronto. The person who was running the permit office for the Transit Commission became like, you know, almost like friends with us where we could ask her for favors and she would get us locations. Um, so, you know, all these, this, this community of people around me really just encouraged and kept encouraging, um, to keep making stuff. And that film ended up playing for Alliance Atlantis, um, in Canada and Toronto. And they, uh, they gave me a movie theater to screen it at. It was just for like, I think it was like two days, but I mean, how cool is that in high school to have, you know, like that's unheard of, right? What did it feel like to have your movie on the screen? Oh, it was, it was amazing. Like I, so I remember walking into this movie theater and, you know, friends are in line buying popcorn and the movie poster that we made is up on the wall and it was terrible. Like it's an awful movie, but you know, it was, it was still really cool to get to do all those things. But so before it even screened at the movie theater, I screened it for the school, the school again, you know, very generously, they set up an afternoon where kids could buy, buy out of class to come watch the movie instead of being in class. Um, and then the money went to everything for you. Holy, I know they were amazing. I'm telling you, it's unheard of, unheard of. Um, and so it was a fundraiser and, uh, I didn't have enough hard drive space on the computer to edit the whole movie in one shot. So I had to cut it, edit it scene by scene, dump it onto tape, delete that scene, edit the next scene. Okay. So people are sitting down for the movie and I'm still splicing the various scenes together onto the final tape. That's going to play it. (laughs) I put in the movie, we hit play. And the very first time I saw the entire script beginning to end was with everyone else in the auditorium. It definitely got better at the other edits, but it was terrible at that time. My girlfriend actually was holding my hand again through this. She wrote the script and she literally says to me at the end of the movie, people are applauding or whatever, because it's a student film and they're just excited to be out of class. She's like, what the fuck was that? That was her reaction. (laughs) Even at this point, you're still like, I'm going to do engineering. Yeah, I know. Yes, I was hundred percent. No, no doubt. The first like thought that I had that this could be a career was when I was applying to schools and I ended up submitting for all the various, you know, engineering schools for computer science. And then I also went and toured and submitted for some of the film programs around me. And I, and I got into a couple of programs and actually one of them, I got a full scholarship for it sort of came down to like, do I go to engineering or do I go and do this film thing? And I was like, I got to do the film thing. Like I got to do it. What was it like to tell your dad that? Oh, it was hard, really hard. Um, and event like the way he justified it to himself was he said, okay, you can go to film school. You can do this. But I had saved a bunch of money for university. He didn't let me have access to it. He's like, you go do that. You pay for it. You figure it out. It's like your, you know, gap years, if you want to think of it that way. And then once you're done that, you're going to go to engineering school and that money that you saved up is going to go into that. If I had a rebellious moment, it was, it was here. It was, I'm going to, I'm going to choose my own life. I'm going to do, do it my way. Um, and I'm going to, I'm going to figure it out. I, I, you know, even in spite of computers and making movies and all that, I had this real entrepreneurial streak. I always owned businesses from the time I was grade in grade seven. 
Um, I always had little side hustles that were making money. So I figured I could side hustle my way through all the costs of going to film school. Mm. So what, um, what was film school actually like for you? Um, film, film school was uh, a very humbling experience because I, I, I walked into a place where you've got kids that were encouraged from day one with a camera or with their passions and their arts pursuits. And I just felt like everyone kicked my butt at everything. Like I just, you know, I, I went in thinking I was going to be a director. And then the very first projects we put out, I saw the kids that were going to be, you know, who really were passionate about directing. And I was like, they are just a whole other level above me. I'm not, I can't, I can't compete. I got nothing on this. Why were they, why did you see them as so much better? I, they just would cut, they would tell stories in such a powerful way. Like I felt like, um, everything I did was, um, hacking stuff together and what they were doing was crafting something, you know, c- crafting a real story, getting into a character, you know, really just, yeah, there was just such great storytelling. I remember my films were just terrible and depressing. Like they're all just very sad and depressing. Whereas other people are making comedies and fun stories, things that I actually wanted to watch. And I was always scratching my head going, ah, damn that they're just so much better storytellers or script writers. Um, so I switched, I went from, I'm going to be a director. Okay. Now I'm going to be a DOP. And, uh, DOP is director of photography. That's correct. Yeah. Director of photography. So then I was always shooting and I thought that's going to be my, my way through it. And again, there's just a couple of kids that were just way better at it than me. And my logic was if someone's better at it than me here, I'm going to get my butt kicked when I leave here. Like I'm just going to get destroyed. Oh yeah. I mean, cause it's like now you're competing against everyone who's ever gone to school and all the people who haven't gone to school, just like everyone in yeah. the industry. Yeah. And I, okay. So I believed that with, with director of photography, I could probably, I could get there. Like I could, I could hustle, I could work hard. I could build my skills. Do you know what really was the final like nail in the coffin? I couldn't lift a film camera. Yeah. And like, I literally could not lift a 35 millimeter camera on my shoulder and I watched other DPs like haul those things around and do whatever. And I was like, there's no way that I can do that. Um, you know, this is like video was around, but it wasn't the wow. primary, like film is the way to shoot. Um, and so I just didn't have confidence again, maybe this, it was probably stupid, but it just felt like a real impediment that I just wasn't gonna, I wasn't going to get there. It's like me trying to pretend that I'm going to be a basketball player. It's not happening. So editing was where I started. Editing was what I went back to. And I thought I'd be an editor. And I thought that that was, and I I was really good at it. I was really fast. I could cut stories together in really smart ways. And so that was, so then it became like, I'm going to be an editor. And so what did it feel like to like dive into that kind of interest? Once I finally decided that that's what I was going to do, it was nice to feel like everything had, like, it was almost like a, I sort of rewrote my own history and I went, ah, you know, everything was telling me to do this. There I was cutting two with two VCRs. I've always been this kind of person that hacks things. I love technology. It's a little bit like programming. It seemed to bring together all my, all my stories, if that makes sense. Um, and tell its own story. And what, that's why it's hilarious that I, I dropped it only a few short years later. I'm curious in what ways you felt a pull towards that. Like, did it really feel at the time, like, like, like a eureka moment or it's like, Oh, like this is what I should be doing. Or was it just like, this is what makes the most sense. Um, when I was like hustling pixie sticks, that wasn't because I saw something that was just like my gut telling me that I need to make money and here's how I can do it. So it was like very gut instinct. When I left, you know, engineering to go to film school, that was gut instinct. But once I'd fully 
landed on the path of gut instinct, there was nothing that really showed me how to rudder that. Like I didn't, I didn't know how to navigate that. I knew I wanted to tell stories and make things. I knew that was clear, but I didn't know what the output of that would look like. And in the early days of film school, you shoot, you edit, you direct, you produce, you do everything. Right. So, um, I was doing all the jobs. And when I looked at my own body of work, the, what really made my work stand out was actually the editing. It's actually you know, what really, uh, you know, sort of solidified it for me was I produced an anti-advertising documentary, which is really funny because, you know, I'm in advertising. Um, so I produce an anti-advertising documentary. I'm the director of photography. I shot it. Um, and I spent so much of that project creating effects, creating motion graphics. Um, there was an editor on the project. Uh, my director friend and I would go into the edit suite at night. We would edit the project. And then we'd, we'd revert it back to where we started, and but we took notes. And then we'd show up in the edit suite the next day. And then we would tell the person who had been assigned editing what to do to get to the edit that we'd already done. Just because we had, she had to be the editor. Wow. So you're going above and beyond. Basically, you're puppeteering the editing. <laughs> so I was like doing it, right? And so then it was like, I should just, I should just edit. Like that, look, look what I'm doing. Look how I'm spending my time. Look where it all comes together for me. You know, it just, all the, all the arrows just started pointing this way. Um, and so it, it was like, this is, this is what I need to do. How do you think you ensure you listen to that kind of like heart pull? It's, uh, especially like in the early days when you're figuring out, like you, like you might have an inkling of like, oh, like this feels good and this feels right. And this feels like what I should be doing. But is it the, uh, zenith the the best embodiment of capturing that feeling where i feel closest to like how i want to express myself i'm I'm curious like what were the indicators is it purely outside sources showing you that oh you're you're doing something good is it like an internal source where it's like this feels best to do like what were some of the the indicators that were driving you towards like this closer and closer to this, like, this is how I want to express myself in the world. Yeah. It's, it's a really interesting question. Um, and I think what's interesting is like my perspective in my brain today would be different than my perspective back then. So back then, what I would have told you is that the, the stars are aligning, that everything is pointing in this direction. And that's why I went down this path. But I actually, if I, if I'm talking from my perspective today, I think founders in general, are people that um, listen to their gut and they just, they just follow it. And sometimes it leads them astray and sometimes it leads them in the right place, but you have to follow something. There's a, there's a million ways and a million decisions and different things you can do, right? Like there's, they're all in front of us and we can pick all these different options as founders about where we go and what we do and how we do it. But if you listen to your gut, it draws like a very clear line on what you should do next or where you're going or what you're doing. And if you learn to trust that instinct, then you kind of end up doing things that other people won't necessarily choose. And I think that that's, and if you're, if you have good taste or you have good instincts, quote unquote, you'll go in a really interesting direction and do something interesting. So you, you have to follow, you have to follow it. You have no choice really ultimately. And I, I think you know, I, I'll tell you at back at that time, oh, I mapped it out and it was all logic and blah, blah, blah. It's bullshit. I just, I just knew I had to follow it and I didn't know where it was going to take me. When you are finishing up college, finishing up this film degree, um, how are you thinking about what you want to do next? 
So just a little dad context in this moment. And so I've gone to film school and, you know, um, in Indian culture, you talk about your oldest child. So if someone says, you know, how's your kids doing? You just focus on the oldest kid and you talk about what they're doing. Right. Really? Why, Why is that? It's just a, it's just like the, the eldest child has a very high degree of responsibility. It's not like, it, it's like the, the theory is that like, if you get the oldest one right, then all the other kids will be good too. My, my family will tell me that I'm the 10th generation of the eldest son of the eldest son of the eldest son for 10 generations. Like they know that, like that's how much they care about it. Wow. 10 generations of the oldest son of the oldest son. Yeah, exactly. So this is the kinds of pressures that are put on you, right? So here I am and I'm in film school and my dad stops talking about me to any of his friends. And I'm like, I need to, you know, take this and turn it into a career. So film school ends. And, uh, I don't know if you remember SARS, it was kind of like the precursor to COVID. So back in 2004, it strikes in Toronto and it completely shuts down the film industry in Toronto. Nobody wants to shoot here. It's gone. So overnight, my job prospects went from really great to completely obliterated. Like, how do you, how do you find work? Well, so my girlfriend, the same one that told me what the fuck is that when she saw the movie, um, Part of that movie was shot inside of an ad agency, Saatchi and Saatchi in Toronto. And through my summers, I would intern at the ad agency and I'd work in the mailroom and I would literally deliver people's mail. And so my very first job in the industry was uh, being the in-house editor at this ad agency. So they had a number of producers and then I sat in there and I'd edit reels together uh, for clients and uh, do little in-house videos and things like that. And was this a job you got because of your girlfriend? hundred percent. Yeah. Her dad was the head of IT and he, him and I got along really well. Um, and so he got me the mailroom jobs and then the editing job. He really helped get me um, that first job. What was kind of crazy was at some point uh, we broke up. Did you already have that job? I had the mailroom job. I didn't have the editing job. Yeah. So are you worried about your, your job prospects post breakup? He's, he's, he was my boss. So it's like, I'm reporting to the guy whose daughter I was dating and I just broke her heart and she was, you know, obviously upset. Um, and you know, I had to go to work the next day and I sat with him and I was like, listen, I'm really sorry. You know, obviously this ended and you know, I tried to explain it the best way I could. And he was like, I, I know you're a good kid. I know that, um, you know, both of you will figure it out and move on to other things. Um, and he was in a, you know, just so gracious about it and yeah, kept me, kept me there. And, um, I, I kept on going. I'm curious for you, where did you feel like you landed post-college where it's like, yes, you have a job, but like, how are you feeling in it? There are people that accept life as it is. And there are people that will change life to fit what it is they believe it is. Right. And so, you know, my life was, as I explained, like hustle after hustle after hustle, it's all I knew. So, you know, when I'm saying I worked at an ad agency, I was doing full-time school. Um, I couldn't live on res cause I couldn't afford it. So I would commute by bus three hours, one way to get to school. And, uh, so I'd take a bus across the city. So I'm editing on my laptop while taking the bus to school. I'm subwaying to work in the late afternoons at the ad agency, uh, editing through, through into late at night, subwaying or taxiing home. <laughs> the agency used to really kindly used to give me a taxi chit so I could like cab home. I lived very far, like an hour away from the ad agency. So, and I would do this cycles and I, and I'd freelance on top of that. So I would do this cycle, you know, every, every day. 
So I come out of, you know, school going a hundred miles an hour. Like I didn't even, I hadn't even graduated and I was working full time already at the ad agency. And when I got in there and they're like showing me where I edit and they're, they were actually on like old school technology. They were still editing tape to tape and I was editing in final cut and doing, you know, video editing. And the first thing I'm like, I need to get you guys up into the, into the new world. We're going to be moving everything to digital and I'm starting a project to turn their entire library into digital files. And I'm getting them to invest in a computer. And so when you're, um, uh, revolutionizing this, this little, uh, this, this agency, um, do you have time to think like, cause it sounds like you're going like hundred miles an hour. Like, like what are you processing about? I just had this idea that whatever I did, I was going to be the best at it. That's all I thought about. So to me, it was like, I got into the ad agency world and I'm like, Oh, I'll just do this for a bit. I'm going to crush it in this. And then when that's done, I'm, I, I was, you know, arrogant as shit. Like I thought I was going to be at the top of my industry in a few years. Um, and I was going hundred miles an hour and I, I didn't, I didn't even stop to think, to be honest, I didn't have, it's not like I had a plan. Um, it was just really like, just go, just hustle, just keep, keep going. Do you think that arrogance though is important when you start? Arrogance has an element of stupidity to it. And stupidity is really important when you want to do something and break some rules. Because if if you are so aware of what it is you're trying to do, you'll talk yourself out of it. If I knew all the things I was going to do wrong as I went, I wouldn't have done them. But because I didn't know better, I just did them. Right. And that's that's the difference. So you need you need a little bit of stupidity, which comes out as arrogance a lot of the time. Especially when like, like when you have like intense self-belief and it doesn't get a match to what you've produced in the world, it comes off as delusional. Yeah, totally. And so when did things or did, did things ever slow down as you're, you're going like a million miles an hour section of it, like what's going on? What kind of traction are you getting? Like, where do you feel like you're going at that time? Yeah. So I'm editing and I, um, I ended up getting promoted to be an assistant producer. My first boss, um, she, uh, said to me one day that I was an amazing editor and I knew so much about editing, but I was a terrible producer. What did they teach you in film school about producing? You don't know anything about producing. And, uh, that meant that there was another area that I needed to just learn about if I was going to be a great editor um, I need to learn more about producing because I was in an ad agency full of producers. So I just needed to learn. And so I kind of did a double duty. I was doing some light producing and also doing um, editing. And I really enjoyed um, the producing side of things. It was really, it was, it was scratching a different itch. And I was starting to think about, um, you know, marriage and kids and all this again, like, you know, I know I was like 22 at the time, but again, like, it's all about ticking the boxes as an Indian kid. You're like, I've got to, I got to get the house. I got to get the 2.5 kids. I got to have a white Prius and a, or a Prius and a white picket fence. Like that's, you know, that's where you're going. That was like where I was. So I just needed to tick a lot of different boxes. And, um, so I was like, being an editor is not really a career as a parent. Cause I would see other people editing or I would see what it would take for me to do it. There were so many nights where I worked 24 hours, 30 hours editing or doing something like that. I, I mean, probably in your early days of your podcast, I'm sure you sat and cut a lot of this stuff yourself. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's work, right? It's a serious amount of work to do that stuff. Um, so, you know, I was in the grind and, um, I realized it wasn't a long-term career. So maybe producing could be more like a, a better career for me. So sort of straddling the two worlds. Um, and then eventually my boss leaves so I'm 23 at this point and the career director and I got along really well of the ad agency. Um, he'd once challenged me on a project. He was trying to make this, this like 
video shot as cheaply as possible. He had a budget of 7k, which, you know, for him was like nothing. And he needed to do this like uh, film for the Cannes Lions Advertising Film Festival for the new director showcase. And he's like, I've got this film idea. The agency's giving me a budget of 7k and no producer here is willing to do this. Now, this is me coming out of film school where $1,500, I made a feature film. I'm like, 7k, I could make you a feature on 7k. That's easy. So I scrapped together a team of like, truthfully, like my film friends and, um, a cinematographer. And we actually shot on film and we shot this commercial and it won awards and did really well for the ad agency. And they were like, Whoa, Whoa, what just happened there? This guy like made something out of with nothing and did a really incredible job of it. Uh, there's something here. Um, and then, so then I started getting projects that no one else wanted to produce. So if, if everyone else had said no to it, it came to me. And so what did producing mean? Like, like, what, like, like functionally, like how to, how, how does one produce? Yeah. Well, it starts by really like taking an idea, um, really understanding what it is that you're trying to make, um, building a team of people. When there's a producer, it's a team sport. It's like when there's a conductor, you need an orchestra. Uh, four people can play in a band together, right? And no problem. But there's a certain point where you get past a certain scale of doing something and you need somebody to orchestrate it. And so I think I think of producers like orchestrators or another example I give my team are, are gardeners, people that set up the circumstances for great things to happen. And so I saw myself as being, okay, I've got to take this idea. I have these constraints and I have to figure out how to do it. And other people would, especially budget is always like a turnoff for people. Like I can't do it, but you'll hear me say, if, if you gave me $50, I'd show up my iPhone and I'd shoot it, but I would come up with a way to do that idea. Um, and so I've always just brought that spirit to how I make stuff. And, um, in the ad agency that paid off really well because every other producer needed like to roll the trucks and have a, this and you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, I'm going to figure out a way to do with a really small lean, mean team. Um, so my boss leaves there's this hole and they're like, we could promote one of the other producers that's been here for a decade or whatever, or we could promote this 23 year old kid and give him a shot and see what he could do with it. And that's what they chose. Wow. So at 23, I'm the head of production of a global ad agency in Canada, which I had no experience or business being. Um, and I'll, I'll never forget the CFO brought me into his office and he's like, okay, we're going to give you this job. We're going to pay you exactly. I was making 30 K. Or 40k and they're like we're gonna give you this job and if you succeed at it you can keep it and you know if you fail at it then we'll have to let you go and he's like you're our you know my the career director really thinks you're awesome and thinks you can do it so do you want to do it and i'm like see this is where the stupidity comes in right like no 22 year old kid has any business i was 23 when i got the job but anyway no no one at that age has any business being in that job and i'm like yes absolutely i will do it <laughs> Did you, you didn't try to like negotiate a little bit more salary nope. or anything. You're just like, let's go. Cause now I'm, I'm the department lead, right? Was anyone pissed? Like, Oh yes. Hugely, hugely. And I, there was people that quit. They literally quit. They're like, we're not reporting to a 23 year old. We're out of here for the ad agency. They wanted an edge. They wanted to do something and look different and putting me in this position felt and looked very different. So what is your first decree as head of production? I had two good ones. Um, I ended up hiring uh, two of my friends. Cause again, I'd never been a manager. I'd never been a boss. So I hired two people that were also making 30 K a year to come and join me in my quest to take on the advertising industry. 
And my second one was, um, there was a woman who actually still works at the ad agency in that same job. And, um, I I'll never forget. She, you know, we couldn't give her, like I told, they were told me like, you can't give her a raise, um, but you got to keep her happy because no one knows how to do her job. And I'm like, okay. So I go in to meet with her and you know, she explains how far she commutes and stuff like that. And I'm like, Hey, I can't give you a raise, but what if you worked from home two days a week? You know, would that, would that make your life better? And she's like, I can do that. I'm like, yeah, I don't care if you're here. You know, your job. I know what you have to do. As long as you keep doing it. Um, I don't care where you do it from revolutionizing work from home and like what this is like 2006 2007 2006 yeah <laughs> like that logic makes so much sense but 100 but i i didn't again i didn't understand this so this is the again the stupidity did not understand that to me it made sense her job was done by herself she worked with all suppliers on the phone you know to me it was like it doesn't make any sense for her to come into the office and so anyway so i, I did this and i go back to my boss and i'm like good news i you know no raise and she's really happy and she's gonna stay and he's like okay and then for weeks, they didn't know that she worked from home two days a week. They didn't, no one checked. And then one day somebody got a complaint. Someone said to somebody and then boss calls me in. He's like, did you let this person work from home? I'm like, yeah, why not? And then he's like, you can't do that. And I'm like, why? <laughs> I'm the boss. You told me to, to deal with it. I did. <laughs> what did they say? Well, at first he, he just like tested the, like, he just asked me a lot of questions and he had no argument. Like he, cause there is no argument. It's like, it's a great decision. Yeah. hundred percent. And all the way up until COVID, uh, she was still doing those two days a week from home and not commuting in. Things are, are moving incredibly well. And it seems like there's, there's no end in sight to how fast you could move, except that maybe there was a little sight issue. What, uh, uh, what ended up happening in 2007? I ended up, um, and this was like a weekend, like literally like I, a week before I thought, you know, I'm sick of glasses. I'm done with them. I'm going to go get laser eye surgery. And so I booked my appointment and, you know, didn't even at the time, didn't even tell my girlfriend, um, just was like, Oh, I'm going to surprise her. Surprise. I can see now. How great is this? Um, so I go in on a Friday afternoon to do the laser eye surgery. So I get the surgery, I come out and for some reason, my corneas don't stay in place they curl up into these little balls and they're just sitting there like dangling on top of my eyes. Now I can't see any of this and no one can see it. It's microscopic. So I'm sitting in the waiting room and I'm like holding my face and I'm like, my eyes are burning. My eyes are burning. And the nurse who's on duty is walking around and she's seeing all the other people are all fine. And I'm like hunched over and like, look like I'm dying. And she's like, buddy, you just had laser eye surgery. Like calm down. You're fine. Wrong. She's like, we got to put these drops in and the drops are going to make it better drops the drops in and the burning just doubles. Like, and it just felt like my whole eyes were on fire. It was excruciating. I, at some moment I get up and I'm like, I can't, I can't wait for this person to help me. And I barge into like, they're doing, they have the optometrist or doing some tests and the optometrist looks at me and she's like, something is wrong. And then they go and they grab the surgeon between surgeries. And he just looks at me from maybe six feet of eight feet of distance. And he's like, that has gone really wrong. Like he knew instantly he could see me and he could see that something was off. Lies me down on the bed. He's like, your corneal flaps have not adhered. Um, I'm going to try and put them back in place. So he like fixes them and he has me like lie on the bed and he puts these two contact lenses in to hold everything in place. So I go home and I can't see anything. And he's like, come back the next day. It's all going to be fine. So I come back the next day and he's looking at me and he's like, this is not right. He puts the big E up on the chart and I'm like, is that a picture of a car? I could not see it all. It was like, it was like looking through a foggy, distorted piece of glass. 
um, things were just not, they just didn't look straight. So I could see shapes, but I couldn't tell really what I was looking at. So, um, yeah, it went, it went real bad. Um, and this went on for months. And so in the meantime, I couldn't see, I couldn't, uh, so I couldn't watch TV. I couldn't, um, cook. I couldn't drive. I couldn't read books. I couldn't do like very normal things. So I listened to audiobooks. I learned to play the tabla. It says Indian drum. <laughs> and my girlfriend who then became my wife later, um, was the only one that would take care of me. So she'd have to do everything for me. What was going on with work? Well, so I had to drop out of work. Um, cause I literally like, it was just physically impossible. Um, so, you know, Canada's got some pretty incredible health programs and long-term disability and all this stuff. So I was actually still getting paid even though I was at home. Um, so that was awesome. Um, so at least that part of it was good and work ended up hiring freelance help and continuing on the department. And literally every week I thought I was going to get better because there was always like, we're going to do this procedure. We're going to do this. This is going to fix it. Oh, we, we, we had you see this doctor or do this test. Now it's going to get better. So I never got to have like a long enough period where I thought things were just bad. And I was very hopeful and optimistic. That was all going to go back to normal. And, um, after like six months of this, my doctor's like, look, I'm not sure we can fix this. Um, we've tried everything and we really just, we don't, we don't know why this is happening and we don't, we can't figure this out. And I was like, this is bad. Cause I'm going to be stuck like this. What, what did, what was your vision like at that point? Was it still just, you couldn't see anything? Foggy mess. Yeah. Couldn't, couldn't make out. Like I could, if you and I were having a conversation, I could tell by your voice who you were and I could tell that you were there, but I, I couldn't make out any shapes or read anything or, um, yeah, it was really awful. So it was like going from a hundred miles an hour to being blind and not being able to see and not being able to do like normal things. Uh, and I spent a lot of time just scratching my head about what, what my life is going to be like from this moment on. Um, I cried a lot. It got real dark at points, you know, as you can imagine, like I'd really felt lost. In what ways did you feel lost? Well, it was just, you know, you're, I'm in television. I produce commercials or film or everything I, I was planning on doing is all about what you can see. Right. Yeah. So then I was like, am I going to be in, I guess I'll become an audio producer. I'll make, I'll make podcasts, I guess this is before podcasts, but you know, I literally didn't know what I was going to do. Was there like a most difficult moment to, to, to get through like a moment where you felt lowest? Well, right when he told me the news, I cried, but then I had this like surge of optimism. Like I'm, I've gotten through many of things. I'm going to be fine. And then after a couple of weeks of sitting with this, I was like, no, this is, this is really bad. You know, I want to have kids and I'm not going to be able to see their face. I can't watch the movies I used to love it. And again, like I, many people live through this experience. And so I, I know that it's, I'm not unique. I, I think what was unique for me was I'd built a world that was based on my sight and suddenly it was gone. It was like a very strange experience to have that taken away by a decision that I made. It's, yeah, it almost makes it worse. It's like, why didn't I, like, why I, I could have just wore glasses and it would have been fine. Like, exactly. You know, one of my moments, one of my reasons why I wanted to do the surgery was, um, I used to hate that I couldn't put my eye up to the lens of a camera. I couldn't, I couldn't, uh, look through a telescope and see the stars properly because I have to wear lenses. So glasses always got in the way of me doing things that I was really passionate about. Um, and so I was like, Oh, if I didn't have the glasses, I could do all these things. The irony is, is to this day, I still can't do those things. I have to buy a camera that focuses for me. When I look at the stars, they're not straight. You know, there's, I still face vision problems, uh, even to this day. Did things start to turn around? 
So I'm in that situation with not being able to see and being told that I'm stuck this way. And I'm like, you know what? There's no way I'm staying this way. There's no way I have to do. There has to be a way corneal transplants, some surgery, something, there's gotta be a way to fix this. And I literally started just calling every laser eye surgery place. And I talked to doctor after doctor after doctor. And then I found out that there's this guy in Montreal and he fixes laser eye surgeries that go bad. That's his specialty. I'm like, okay, there now we got, we got a plan now. So then I'm like laser eye clinic that, you know, messed up my eyes. You're going to pay for everything. I'm going to this guy and he's going to fix me. So I get on a plane. I go to Montreal. I see this guy. He's like, I can fix this. I'm like, okay, really? He's like, yep. What we're going to do is we're going to do the same things. We're going to iron your cornea, but then we're going to stitch it. We're going to put stitches in your eyes and we're going to hold it in place. And we're going to leave it like that for a month. And then we're going to take the stitches out and then it's going to work. I'm like, okay, yes, whatever, whatever I'll do it. So I, I don't think I, again, knew exactly what I was signing up for, but he was serious. So he did one eye at a time. So he goes in, he fixes it, he stitches it. And when you're knocked out for surgery, your eyes actually roll back into your head. So you have to be awake for this surgery. So I'm like awake. Of course, I'm a filmmaker. So I brought a camera and I actually looked up to his microscope. So I actually have video footage of this, of him going in and stitching my eye with like a needle and thread and putting sutras into my eye. Well, okay. So you said he does one eye at a time. Do you mean like in the same session or in different sessions? No. So he stitches the one eye and then I could fly home to Toronto. Now drugged up, like he put freezing in my eyes. When the freezing came out, imagine having like 10 eyelashes in your eye that you cannot remove and they just cannot be taken away. And every time you blink, you feel them. That's what it was. And so I go home like this for a month and it's awful and painful and it cannot describe to you how miserable it was. And then I fly back to Montreal. He removes the stitches and it works. I can see, and I can see like almost perfectly. Could you see before the stitches were out? It was weird because parts of my eye were still distorted because if you can imagine it, it was like your eye was being like stretched in these really weird ways. So things were still distorted and they were also swollen. So like there's something called edema where your cornea like swells up. So it was like swollen and it was being stretched. So it looked like a new kind of distortion from what I was dealing with before. And then he takes out the threads and it kind of like eases back in and it unswells. And then it was like, holy shit, I can see again. Whoa. Okay. This worked. And then I had to go back and do the second eye. God, but at the end of those months, I can see now, now what? So many things were different. So now I'd been out of work for a year and my agency, they were wonderful while I was away. Like they held down the fort. They kept my job. They were so wonderful through the whole thing. You know, I had industry friends and partners and um, a lot of people just assumed I was never coming back. So I was sort of abandoned. People that I thought were my friends just kind of abandoned me like suppliers and things like that. A few people really stuck it out with me. And one of them, I remember told me that they're like, you've been on a, like a bullet train and you were stopped. You're not going to get back on and go back at that speed. Like you just can't, you're not that person anymore. You've had a year of not doing any of these things and sitting at home and you're not going to come back and suddenly be like back into doing what you were doing before. And they were totally right. I got back into that job and I just could not do it. I just, I couldn't work the hours. I couldn't deal with the stress. I couldn't just connect with the work. Nothing was feeling right. What changed? I thought the place had changed. Not ready to admit that I had changed. And so I actually quit the job within a few months of going back. And I joined my friend at another ad agency 
And I got there and I had the exact same problem. I couldn't connect with the work. I didn't care. I didn't want to do it. And it was hard. I thought like that career of being that ad agency, had a production going in that direction. It's just can't be anymore. Now you kind of have to reinvent yourself, right? Yeah, I do. Can we dive a little deeper into like what actually changed or like why it was so hard for you or what did your personality change? You think did like your priorities change? Yeah, I think I didn't have a rhyme or a reason or like there was no reason to where I was going. There was no purpose. I was just running at a hundred miles an hour in a direction that I'd sort of gotten on this train and I just left the station and I didn't really think twice about where I was going. And that year off gave me pause. It made me think about what am I doing? Why am I doing it? What actually matters to me? How do I want to spend the minutes of my day? Who do I want to spend those minutes with? All those questions came up that I'd never really had to stop and think about. And so it became really hard to just go and jump back into working with no real understanding of why I was working. Because at some point, I think a lot of people, you know, get into a career and just go do it. And they never really get that chance to pause and think about the thing you're doing right now. Is this actually what you want to be doing? Is this actually what you care about? Or was this just the thing you found yourself in? And that, that's where I landed was I just, I realized I didn't actually care about what it was I was doing. So you were looking for purpose again. Yeah, hundred percent. So after you leave, you leave around like 2009 ish from the company, right? Yeah. So this is, so this is like 2009. Actually in that year, I got back to work. I left Saatchi. I joined this other ad agency, The Hive. I left that and I went to freelancing. And then 2010, I actually started a company with a couple of friends to build a tech product because I thought I'd go into startup life and bring my producing skills and my love of tech together. And I did that. And what were you trying to build? We had this idea to build a website that was called Price My Ride. And it was an all-in car cost calculator. So you mentioned that you drive a Prius. So if you told me the car you were driving right now and how much you were spending a month, I could then with this site, tell you other cars that you could be driving at the same budget, or you could tell me I want to increase my budget and it would work out car payments, insurance, maintenance costs, gas, everything, and give you the all-in cost of owning and operating your car. So it was a way to help people shop with a little bit more data and really understand the kind of car they could buy. So we set this up. We had no funding of any kind. So the way I would fund it is I would freelance produce and use that money to pay to run the startup. And how did that work? (laughs) Well, at the peak of the company, we had eight people working there. Two of us were dedicated to like the freelance working projects to pay the bills for the eight people that were all working on the tech startup. And we tried to sort of mix people in to do some advertising work, but they always hated it. Didn't want to do it. And what eventually became clear is that I was basically like footing the bill for all these people. And so I was hustling like I used to. So I was working days and nights working on the tech as well as, you know, producing. And they were kind of just working on the tech and they would show up at 10, leave at four, not work weekends. They just weren't putting in what I was putting in. And that became a uh, real pressure point that eventually blew up and caused the complete collapse of the company. So you're, you're feeling this pressure point of like, I'm basically working a job to allow everyone else to work a job. Yeah. And I'm working that job too. So you're working two jobs and you're just like feeling you're putting so much effort in and not everyone else is there. So how does this come to a boiling point? 
you know, I kept trying to get people to do other things or hustle or let's get to an MVP. They wanted to be Apple. They wanted to like keep going until it was perfect versus like just get something out there and let it start seeing if we can get traction. And we would get meetings and we would like, you know, there'd always be these moments of hope. You know, someone would say, oh, I'm going to put in money. Then they never put in money. It just kind of kept going on and on like this. And yeah, it just got to this boiling point where I felt like I was holding up the whole thing. And so one day I just stopped. I was just like, well, I'm not going to put in anymore. I'm just not going to do any more work towards this. And they're like, you can't do that. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I can. I don't know. I have, there's no requirement that says that I have to pay to be here or to continue funding this. So look, if you guys think that this should keep going, then let's fund it equally dollar for dollar, but I'm not doing it anymore. And so suddenly that got into a fight. It got into a legal fight and we ended up having to shut down the whole thing. Was that just like tough doing the closing down process? Like, how did you feel? Like it was one of the lowest moments of my life because I had been on this like advertising career and it had fallen apart. And then I'd been on this startup career. And again, I thought that this was going to work. Like every morning I woke up, I believed in this. I thought that this was going to be my Steve Jobs or my like, uh, this was going to be the thing that I put in the world. Um, and I was really excited and passionate and motivated to do it. And then it suddenly, for all kinds of reasons, just fell apart in front of me. And then it was like, well, what do I have now? I got nothing. And I went into like a depression. Like I'd, I'd lost friends because of it. Like many of the people that were in that company had been at my wedding and had been good friends and I'd made other friends through them. So it's like I lost my friend network and I lost my company at the same time. And I was really lost. I tried to work. I tried to do some freelance projects here and there, but they didn't get my whole heart or attention. And I was in a funk for a really long time. And it was hard to break out of that. How long were you in a funk for? I'd say it was easily a year, year and a half of, you know, working very part-time, one project at a time, things that were very much in my capability. Like I didn't want to stretch anything outside of what I knew that I could absolutely do. And yeah, it was hard. You know, people would talk about, oh, we should start a new company. You should do your next thing. Next time, get investors. Next time, you know, all these things that you had all these lessons learned that you're going to apply. I told everybody, I was like, I will never start a business again. I do not want really? anything to do with this. Yeah, I was done. In fact, when I started my freelance company, I named it Summit. So that that way there was no confusion about who owned it. It was literally my name. Can you tell me a little bit about the decision to start that new freelancing company? I was just like, I'd been a freelance producer. And even when I was working at Maru, I was effectively freelance producing and working at Maru. People were hiring me because I'd worked in advertising and I produced all these things. So, so it was really just me continuing to do what I'd always done. So I just started producing again and uh, just did it under my own name. And I'd hire freelance help when I needed it so I could build up a team when needed. But I, I had no employees and I didn't want to. So is this basically, it was just like, like an LLC name to just do what you had always been doing. Exactly. But on my own terms, because as a freelancer, I could really set up the conditions of what I wanted and what projects I took on and where I did it. And I didn't have to answer to anybody else. And that was great at that time. That's what I needed. I got married in that time, had my first kid in that time, bought a house and I sort of got on some life stuff while this was all going on. And how do you make the decision to get involved with the bike factory? Actually, that was one of my first freelance gigs after leaving my first ad agency job. So before I even started Maru, I'd started this project and I was able to carry it over into freelance. So even though I left that company, they really wanted me to do that project. And so they graciously hired me to you know, freelance that job for them. And so I got to produce that. 
So just to explain the bike factory to you a little bit. So it was a, a project which uh, was done by Cadbury and this agency, The Hive. And they had this idea to give bicycles to kids in rural Ghana. Cadbury sources a lot of their chocolate from Ghana. And the idea was that if kids have a bicycle, um, especially in these rural towns, some of them would travel like hours to get to school. They could get on a bike and get to school in 20 minutes and get back. And it was a really, you know, really cool project to help out with. So that first project, we went there to Ghana and we shot a documentary and I'd never been to Ghana. No one in the company had been there before. And I'd been asked to like figure out how to deliver bicycles to kids in Ghana, which I knew nothing about to create this documentary. And so I ended up going with this other producer and him and I get out at the airport and we're just like, okay, we're here in Accra, Ghana in West Africa. Now we got to figure out how to do all these things. And we literally started making friends. The guy that was our first driver became our fixer that would help us produce for the next 10 years on the project. And he helped us make friends in Ghana. And we just, we literally like figured it out all from scratch. Wow. What did it feel like to be involved in that? This was like the project I think that really later on saved me because even when I had Maru, I had this and I always came back to it. You know, like as an example, when I had my first kid, we were supposed to shoot like weeks before she was going to be born and the client moved the project and the delivery for the commercial to after my kid was born to make sure that I could go and produce this project. Like just imagine like a corporation moving their media and their buy and everything just to make sure that some one single person on the team could be part of it. So it was like, it was like a big part of, you know, what I was doing at that time is something that really got me excited. But like, I remember going into that, uh, into Accra and we were trying to figure out like what the bike situation is in Ghana. Like, why don't people just get bikes from there? And we were walking into this bike market and it's thousands and thousands of bikes that have come off ships from the Western world that are all broken and people there are fixing them. So they've got every part and they're building these bikes and, you know, selling them. And it, it was this like really cool culture around bikes that are built up there in Ghana in the very North of Ghana. It's basically like almost like desert and bikes are like the main mode of transportation. People use it for everything. You're trying to get someone from your village to, uh, a doctor, they get on the back of a bike and ride, you know, so it's, it's very much part of the culture there. So it was cool to see that in real life and then to sort of become part of that culture and, you know, meet people that are giving bicycles, go into villages and train them on how to, you know, fix up bikes for kids and create like a, a more sustainable program and helping bikes there. So how did it, that project develop up until 2014? Cause you started that in 2009, right? Yeah. 2009 was the first time I went. So once we sort of got off the first, you know, got off the first project and we had produced this documentary, you know, the program was a big success. People loved it. It became Cadbury's like in Canada, at least top selling program outside of Easter. And so for the next 10 years, they kept investing in different kinds of projects that were about giving bikes. So thir over 30,000 bikes were given to school kids in Rogana. Wow. Wow. So you're, I mean, doing these incredible projects, it's now under your own company named after you, but how, as you grow, does the company change? Yeah, it's very, every project I try to bring something different. So like in terms of the body of work that I've produced over my lifetime from feature film to, you know, documentary to TV commercials and ads, installations, experiences, whatever I've made, I've always been really attracted to projects that don't fit, that don't fit like 
standard things. If someone said, Hey, shoot a car spot, I've got a million dollars, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'd be like, eh, it's not, it's not exciting to me. I want to do something really interesting. So projects like the bicycle factory always really appealed. It's something I don't know anything about and I'm going to get to figure it out and learn and itch, scratch that entrepreneurial itch while also being a producer. So all my projects over all my life have been that way. So bike factory, every version of it had different people working on it. And it was neat because I'd get to bring all these people into my world, into West Africa, learn about the culture, learn about the people. It, it was this like really cool cultural experience as much as it was producing interesting work. So how did the company begin to have like, I guess, a little bit more structure to it? So, you know, we're running under Summit and it started to get busier and busier. More people started coming to us with interesting projects. And if you can imagine the world, I mean, now more so than ever, the mediums are exploding. There's so many different ways to tell stories and so many different kinds of stories we need to tell in so many different places. And it's really hard to find a company or people that you can go to and every time they're going to figure out a different way to make that thing. So we were already working that way, even when it was just under my name. And I, there was a, at one point there was five of us working under the summit banner. So it'd be like person's name at summit.ca. And truthfully, they mutinied. Like they went, we don't want to work under your name. It's weird. It's embarrassing. You know, if you want us to keep working here, you need to come up with like a company name and we need to be a company because we are, we're, we're all doing this. And uh, I was known in my industry, so they felt like kind of just strange about it as being a freelancer and stuff like that. Because they were they were great producers in their own right. They wanted we needed something that represented like uh, everyone and not just me. Uh, and so then literally it went like this: fine, fine, we'll we'll call it Makers, and now we're a company. And that's like literally how the whole thing started. I wish I had a great story to tell you about how it was you know, really planned out. And later on, the vision really solidified. But in the very first beginnings of it, it was like, we work differently. We know we like working this way and we like working together, you know, but we needed to be something. And so then it was a company and suddenly we were out producing as makers. I kind of want to bring that to Habitat for Humanity and how you initially got that and, and what that looks like. So COVID hits and, you know, as a production company producing work, our work just dries up overnight. Um, at the time we were a staff of 20, um, as you can imagine, as a business owner, that is scary as shit to lose all your work and have 20 employees and you're just scratching your head, you know, going, what do you want to do? And so we tried to find things where we could contribute and help in COVID. So we started a program to help out restaurants where we took high-end meals and we delivered them to people on Thursday, Fridays, and Saturdays. Um, and we built a website and we sold this program and we figured out delivery and we did all the pieces and got these restaurants working. And then $5 from every meal went to the Daily Bread Food Bank to you know help families in need as well. Another project we did was uh, we created coloring pages for kids under this program called Super Workers. So we took frontline workers and we used Illustrator contacts that we had. We drew up kids coloring pages and we gave away this free book and asked people to donate to Kids Help Phone, which was another charity in Toronto. So we're doing these programs and we ended up making a lot of connections through that. So Habitat for Humanity, someone there calls us up and asks if we can help them with an ad campaign for raising money to build houses. And I get on the phone with them and I'm like, okay, this is, yeah, we could do that. Just, just tell me about like the, what's going on at Habitat and you know, what, what do you have? And it turns out that Habitat has a lot of land that's been donated to it, but they don't have enough funding to build houses. 
And I was like, okay, this is interesting. Would you give me the property you don't think you could ever build on? Like the crappiest property you've got that you're never going to build on. Can I, can I experiment with it? Can I do something really interesting with it? Cause I feel like there's something here. And they, they went away and they thought about it. They came back. They're like, okay, sure. There's this like little property beside an airport. And they're like, we don't know what to do with it. Have at it. And I had this idea that I'm like, okay, if I could help them build a modular designed house that was more energy efficient, and I could get that built for them in a new building model, that that would mean that they could use the same amount of money and build more houses. Because that's really the, the, really the problem. Like you want to make sure that every dollar is being spent in the best way possible. And they were doing it in a really, like in the most inefficient way, the oldest, most traditional style of construction. And, you know, as a producer, you know, what business does a producer have in building houses? Well, nowhere is a producer needed more than in construction. Using that again, that, that scrappy like mindset, how do we just take what we have and make something with what we've got? Well, you know, I contacted the University of Waterloo, which is like our building sciences university. And I told them the problem. And I said, look, architects, all the work they do either affects the very highest end of construction. Like, you know, you're, you're rich and you're building a really top end home. You get a great architect or like public housing, a city pays for it. And you get involved in that. And 95% of the middle doesn't benefit from the modern construction techniques from the newest architectural designs. None of it. They're like, shit, you're right. Okay, we, we can really help you do this. And so they teamed me up with an architect that had come out of the university. And so what I basically did was got Habitat for Humanity, the University of Waterloo, and this incredible passive house architect all to just talk to each other and work together and come up with a different process for how to build a house. And it's just three groups that never talk to each other. And, you know, at first, like the construction manager at Habitat is like, no way would we ever use any of this. This is ridiculous. I'm, I want nothing to do with this. You ask him now after he's built the house, this is amazing. I never want to build a house any other way except for this way. This is like infinitely better than anything I've ever done in my whole construction career. That's incredible. So, so what ended up happening with the project? So the, the house is done. The person moved into it, you know, a woman, three kids, and she was living in this really tough place. And now she's living in this awesome passive house designed house that's uh, completely different, you know, and we just looked at the entire house and everything about it that we could change that would make it more efficient and easier and faster to build. We did. The house doesn't have a basement. It's got incredibly thick walls. You know, Elon Musk's solution to solving the energy problem of houses is to shove tens of thousands of dollars of solar panels on the roof, but solar panels break down eventually. What if you just never need those solar panels in the first place? What if you just build a more energy efficient house that doesn't need the power to begin with? Isn't that a much better way to go? And so that was our strategy. How do we create the most energy efficient home and reduce the power needs in this house? And so now they're looking at this going, okay, this is a really cool method for how we can build houses. How can we apply this to other houses around Canada for Habitat? And then how can we expand that into other markets as well? Where do things go from there? Like I would love to, to know the steps that a general maker's project go, sir. So one of our longstanding clients wanted to do a global conference and they needed to do this conference in Hong Kong, Zurich, New York, Toronto, and they needed it to happen on the same day in all those markets. And so what we did was our client speaks to our executive producer. We figure out exactly what we need and what that project will look like. And then we assign one of our producers who works directly with the client 
to then manage all those parts. So the client doesn't have to do anything. They just literally speak to this producer about anything they need. And that producer is responsible for all those different markets. And that's everything from setting up the events locally to how we shoot it, to the assets that go on the screen. You, you name any aspect of that conference and we took care of it end to end. So for clients, what's really powerful is that it's like one point of contact that understands their DNA, their brand, their systems through and through and can execute for them anywhere. And as you see more tech companies centralizing in places like Seattle or Silicon Valley or whatever, they're less and less interested in being fully localized everywhere. They might have like little skeleton teams everywhere, but they're not, it's not like, you know, what it was 20, 30 years ago where a company opens up and then sets up fully entrenched satellite offices with all the resources of the main, of the mothership, right? So attaching us gives them that scale on demand when they need it, where they need it without having to always have it. It's like cloud computing for producing. <laughs> Looking back at everything you've been through, what do you think is like one piece of advice you'd give to maybe someone who is on the beginning of that entrepreneurial journey? I have, I have two, if you don't mind, that I think are really important. One of them is the, the importance of failure. I think we still stigmatize failure and we see them as like success and failure and they're two sides of the coin. But really failure is just the steps to success. You're going to climb a mountain. You're going to stumble along the way. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to take the wrong path. That's just part of it. You have a failure, dust yourself off, get back up, keep going. You're going to learn a ton along the way. And the second one is companies spend egregious amounts of time figuring out how to raise money. I've never raised a dollar for any company I've ever owned. I've always just bootstrapped it and done it myself because it's way easier to ask somebody for work or for a project or for an opportunity than it is to ask them for money. And if you keep just going and just doing it, you're gonna learn so much more. So take your project, make it small. What's the smallest, leanest, lies version of this that I can make that can prove that this is actually worth doing? Do that. Okay, I've done a little bit. Build, build, build. And then, you know what's funny? You'll find people who will want to invest in you along the way because you've actually demonstrated real proof and real success. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our audio editing team lead is Ashley Jimenez with support from Jessica Morales, Miley Lipton, Siyu Pan, Kenny Ray, Josie Yo. Matt Fernandez and Merritt Hill. Our outreach and research team lead is Desiree Nunez with support from Marissa Granados, Monica Lee, Sarah Tiersmer, and Yao Luo. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.